Hey, imagine if all your frustrations about advertising your business could be solved right now. You should know that podcast listeners are more engaged in higher converting than any other advertising medium. So try AdHub today and reap the rewards of Spreaker's self-advertising platform. It makes it as effortless as ever to be heard by thousands, regardless of the listening app they use. Visit Spreaker.com forward slash AdHub. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com forward slash AdHub and start using your advertising dollars in an impactful way. Crime and Crime Again discusses true crime content that may be graphic or disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Crime and Crime Again. So I took a look back at my very first three episodes of the podcast ever, and I decided that though the audio isn't terrible, it definitely isn't up to my personal satisfaction. So I wanted to rework those episodes a little bit and re-record them with much, much better audio. And that is what I have for you today, a re-release of my very first episode on the case of Brooklyn Farthing. So without further ado, here is the new and improved very first episode of Crime and Crime Again. Season 1, Episode 1, The Disappearance of Brooklyn Farthing. At the time of her disappearance, Brooklyn Farthing was 18 years old and living in Berea, Kentucky. She had just graduated high school in June 2013 and was still deciding whether she wanted to go to college or take some time off. According to her family, she loved doing her hair and always seemed to have her makeup done. She was thinking about cosmetology school. Brooklyn was extremely close with her family, especially her sisters, older sister Tasha and younger sister Paige. Brooke was described by family and friends as incredibly outgoing and spunky, and she always had a relatively large group of friends. She loved animals and loved the outdoors. You could often find her out fishing or riding four-wheelers. In general, Brooke was a really laid-back social butterfly who was so, so loved by everyone who knew her. June 21st, 2013 was a rather eventful day for Brooke. She and her sisters started their day by going to take their driving tests hoping to pass and get their licenses. According to her sister Paige, she did not pass her test, but Brooklyn did. That same day, Brooke celebrated her grandfather's birthday with the rest of her family. Overall, she had a busy day and already had plans for the next day as well. On the evening of June 21st, 2013, Brooke, Paige, and one of their cousins all went to a party together. The details of this party have never been specified, but in Berea, Kentucky, a party could very well just mean a lot of people hanging out around a bonfire in the middle of a field, drinking and playing loud music. That's pretty much how it was for my family's social gatherings. One detail we do know, however, is that this was apparently a birthday party for one of Brooke's friends. Around 8pm, Paige and the cousin left the party early. Brooklyn stayed at the party as she had already made plans to stay the night with a friend who was also at the party. At some point in the night, however, Brooke and this friend had an argument, though it's unclear what their disagreement was about. According to Brooke's mom, in her interview with Investigation Discovery for Brooke's episode of Still a Mystery, her mom says that their argument was likely about a boy. As a result, they canceled their plans to stay the night together and the friend left the party. This meant that Brooklyn now had no way to get home. 
Despite having passed her driving test earlier that day, Brooke wasn't able to get herself home, since she had arrived at the party with her sister and cousin and they had already left, unaware that Brooke's plans to go home with a friend had now been cancelled. On top of that, she simply didn't have access to a vehicle. Another friend of Brooke's who was at this party was incredibly intoxicated, and she took it upon herself to help him find a way home. Brooke and her friend eventually seemed to have found a way home when they were offered a ride by a man named Josh. Keep his name in mind. He becomes a key figure in this story. It is alleged that Josh was vaguely acquainted with Brooke because he was friends with her ex-boyfriend, though I personally have not seen this confirmed. Brooke's family is also not entirely certain how well Brooke or her ex-boyfriend knew Josh. Either way, Brooke was not particularly familiar with Josh at all, and was certainly not considered friends with him. As a note about Brooke's ex-boyfriend, I have seen multiple sources state that he was just a boyfriend, and other sources state that he was in fact her ex-fiancé. For the sake of simplicity, I'm just going to refer to him as her ex-boyfriend. This is where the story gets a bit dicey. Some sources state that Josh himself drove Brooke and her friend, and other sources state that it was Brooke driving Josh's vehicle. However, at this point, it's most likely that it was in fact Josh driving his own vehicle. According to Josh, around 2 a.m., the three of them had left the party and had stopped to go horseback riding at an unspecified location. Sources state that at the time, Josh had been working on a farm where he would have had access to these horses. After this, Josh claims that the male friend of Brooke's was dropped off at his home. Around 4 a.m., Josh and Brooke arrive at a house on the 100 block of Dillon Court in Berea, and this is a small cul-de-sac on the outskirts of town. This house belonged to Josh, but was in foreclosure at the time, meaning there was no running water or electricity in the home. This means that Brooke was in a dark house at four in the morning with a complete stranger. Why would he even take her there instead of taking her home? Around the same time they arrived at the house, Brooke called her younger sister Paige to ask if there was anyone who could come pick her up and bring her home. Again, this phone call was made around 4 a.m., Paige told Brooke that her cousin was still too intoxicated to drive, so she was unable to go get her. Now, remember that Paige hadn't passed her driving test that morning, so she was unable to drive by herself and she had no access to a vehicle. At this point, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Paige says that during this phone call, Brooklyn sounded completely fine and safe and was simply asking if someone could come and grab her to take her home. She didn't sound frightened or alarmed at this point. Paige asked Brooke if she wanted her to wake up their mom to come get her, but Brooke insisted that she was fine and would make other arrangements. There was no reason at the time of this phone call for Paige to believe that anything was wrong. It was soon after this phone call that Brooke texted her ex-boyfriend who she was still close to at the time. Though they were no longer officially in a relationship, they seemed to remain good friends and were in frequent contact with each other. She asked him if he could possibly come pick her up, and he agreed, but he said that it would have to be after he got off work, around 6.30 a.m. He did ask her if she would be okay until then, and if she was doing alright if she felt fine. She said she was fine, and that she had been drinking, but was sobered up by then. She told him that the man that she arrived at the house with was passed out in the other bedroom, and that she was just sitting on the couch, smoking a cigarette. So again, there was no reason at this point for anyone that Brooke was texting to think there was anything wrong. Things did, however, take a turn. Shortly after making arrangements with her ex-boyfriend, Brooke's text messages quickly became urgent and distressed. 
At 4.26 a.m., she began sending a string of alarming messages to him, such as, can you hurry, and I'm scared. After this, the messages abruptly stopped. An hour and a half later, around 5.30 a.m., her ex-boyfriend received another message from Brooke that said, Never mind, I'm okay, I'm going to a party in Rockcastle County. In many places, it might seem strange to refer to a location by county rather than by the town or city. In eastern Kentucky, however, it's the norm. Many parts of Kentucky are extremely rural, and many counties encompass only one or two small towns. I can attest to this, having grown up in eastern Kentucky. When you met a new student at school and asked where they were from, they would say, Oh, I just moved here from Garrett County. Or when you made small talk with your grocery store cashier, they would say, I grew up in Madison County. Berea is in Madison County, and Rockcastle County was just the next county over, to the south. From Berea, it's about a 20-minute drive to Rockcastle County. So, the fact that the message specified a county wasn't the reason that it came across as suspicious. Never mind, I'm okay. I'm going to a party in Rockcastle County, was the last message ever sent from Brooklyn Farthing's phone. Her ex-boyfriend did respond to this message, asking where exactly she was going and who she was going with, but he never got a reply. Brooklyn had previously made plans to attend a car show with friends on the morning of June 22, 2013. When Brooke didn't show up to this car show and no one could get a hold of her, her family and friends became increasingly worried. It was out of character for Brooke to ignore their phone calls and text messages for this long. She was the kind of person who was constantly talking to people, constantly telling people where she was, where she was going, and what her plans were. So her complete silence was very concerning. Her family had started contacting her friends, trying to find out whether anyone had seen Brooke that morning. They learned that the last time anyone had seen her, she was leaving the party the night before with her extremely intoxicated friend and the unfamiliar man that no one seemed to know much about, Josh. Berea, Kentucky is a tight-knit community, and I know that we hear this all the time when it comes to small towns, but having grown up there, I can say that this is 100% true. In Berea, Richmond, and the entire Madison County area, really, everyone kind of does know everyone. If you don't know everyone, you know someone who knows someone. It's truly that type of stereotypical small town. And this is why it was so strange that no one seemed to know much of anything about this Josh character that was seen offering Brooklyn a ride from the party the night before. Her sisters managed to get Josh's phone number, and Tasha, again Brooklyn's older sister, called him to ask where Brooklyn was. Josh told Tasha that he had no idea where Brooklyn was, and at some point he did say that Brooke had apparently mentioned something about going to a party in Rockcastle County. Josh claimed that around 6 a.m. he left the house to go tend to some horses. Having owned horses myself, I'm not positive whether he means putting them out, bringing them in, feeding them, or what. He's always been vague about this explanation. I also assume that these would be the same horses that he was referring to when he claimed that he, Brooke, and her friend had gone riding at 2 a.m. He went on to say that he left because he didn't want to be there when her ex-boyfriend came to pick her up. I assume that this was supposed to mean that he didn't want her ex-boyfriend to arrive, see that Brooke had been alone with an unfamiliar man, and think he'd been making moves on her or fooling around with her. Fifteen minutes after the first phone call, Josh called Tasha back, and he was in a panic. He told Tasha that he was worried and scared. Tasha asked him what he was talking about, and he told her that Brooklyn's belongings were still in his house. 
but Brooklyn was gone. Before going to the party the night before, Brooke had packed an overnight bag, as she had originally planned to stay the night with a friend after the party. Josh told Tasha that that overnight bag, along with Brooke's purse and shoes, were still in his house. According to her sisters, Brooke was extremely protective over her belongings. Tasha has said that anytime Brooke was at her house, even if she was just moving from one room to another, she would still take her purse with her. It was never out of her sight, and she didn't allow anyone to touch or go through it. Her shoes were sitting on the front porch, and they were the only shoes that Brooke had with her that night. They also weren't just strewn on the porch, as though someone had kicked them off and walked inside. They were neatly and delicately placed. Also during this second phone call to Tasha, Josh explains that he's scared because when he got home around 7 that morning, his house was on fire. And he had in fact called the fire department around 7am to report a fire in his living room. He says that when he left around 6am to go tend to horses, Brooke had been sitting on the couch smoking a cigarette. So he essentially places the blame for the house fire on Brooke. Now, a little more about this fire. Josh's statement to Tasha was misleading. He said that his house had caught fire, but this was not entirely true. The fire was localized to a couch that had been dragged outside of the house, burnt down to its framing. There was literally nothing left of this couch except for the metal framing. It's assumed that this was the same couch he claimed Brooke had been sitting on when he left. There was also allegedly a hole burned into the floor underneath the couch. But other than that, this couch is the only thing in the entire house that caught fire. This is when Brooke's family immediately knew that she wasn't just missing, but that something must have gone terribly wrong and something more serious must have happened. I believe it was after learning about this suspicious fire that Brooke's family called the police. Upon investigating the scene, police discovered that Brooke's wallet, all the money she had, all of her makeup, etc. was still in the house. The only item missing from the scene was her cell phone. A search was launched immediately. Authorities attempted to track her cell phone, hoping that a location on the phone would lead to Brooke herself. Her phone continued to ring for two to three days before it likely died. Before it died, the phone continuously pinged a three-mile radius around a cell tower located in an area known locally as Blue Lick. And this area was about eight to ten minutes away from the house where Brooke was last seen. The search for Brooke covered thousands of acres over a period of time, and this search was incredibly extensive. Hundreds of people volunteered to help. They brought in cadaver dogs, they searched on horseback. In this case, it does seem that they utilized every resource. Unfortunately, the area in and around Madison County that was searched was actually extremely difficult to search. The area is covered with dense woods, mountains, drop-offs, cliffs, just generally not an easy place to conduct a search for a missing person. Even the horses had a tough time moving through much of the terrain. Despite the magnitude of the searches for Brooklyn, they found nothing. To this day, nothing connected to Brooke has been found, not even her cell phone. These organized searches for Brooklyn were effectively called off in July 2013. Investigators tried to dig more deeply into the story behind Brooke's disappearance. First, they wanted to know more about this alleged party that was mentioned in the message sent from Brooke's phone. Rockcastle County is much like Madison County, a small, tight-knit community where everyone knows everyone and everyone knows everyone's business. 
Upon questioning people in the area who could possibly be connected to Brooke, Josh, or anyone who knew them, investigators concluded that there was no party happening in Rockcastle County at 5.30 a.m. that morning. This is the kind of community where, if there was a party happening, especially if people from other counties were coming to attend, people would know about it. But no one in the area had heard anything about any party that Brooke could have attended. This conclusion further fueled suspicions that the last text message sent from Brooke's phone, where she claimed that she was okay and going to another party, after sending alarming and frightened messages, was not actually sent by Brooke. Investigators have stated that they have reason to believe that that is in fact true, that the message was sent by someone else. And that is all the information we have on Brooklyn's case. The only update that I have is that on August 4th, 2020, Josh was arrested with two other men in Richmond, Kentucky, the neighboring town to Berea, on child exploitation charges. I was unable to confirm whether or not he is still incarcerated on those charges. In an article by the Richmond Register on August 5th, 2020, Josh is, quote, charged with one count of possession of matter portraying a minor in a sexual performance, end quote. The article goes on to say, quote, In 2013, Josh was the owner of the home where 18-year-old Brooklyn Farthing, who has been missing since that time, was last seen, end quote. Now, again, that is all the information that we have on the case. All of my sources will be listed in the show notes. If you have any information on the disappearance of Brooklyn Farthing in the early hours of June 22, 2013, in Berea, Kentucky, please contact the Kentucky State Police at 859-623-2404 or the Madison County Sheriff's Department at 859-623-1511. There is a website dedicated to Brooklyn's case, and it is www.findbrookfarthing.com. There's also a Facebook page called Missing Brooklyn Farthing. I will link both the website and the Facebook page in the show notes. You can find Crime and Crime Again on Twitter at CrimeAgainPod, Instagram at CrimeAgainPodcast, Facebook Crime and Crime Again Podcast, and most recently I am on TikTok at CrimeAgainPodcast. If you would like to request a case that you'd like to hear me cover on the podcast, I will leave a link to a case request form in the show notes. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, please do leave a rating and a review. It really, really helps out the visibility of the show and I would appreciate it so, so much. If you listen on another device and would still like to leave a review, you can do that on podchaser.com by searching Crime and Crime Again, or I will leave the link in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that on Buy Me a Coffee, where you can make a one-time donation less than the price of one cup of coffee. And I will also leave that link in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode of Crime and Crime Again.
Hey, imagine if all your frustrations about advertising your business could be solved right now. You should know that podcast listeners are more engaged in higher converting than any other advertising medium. So try AdHub today and reap the rewards of Spreaker's self-advertising platform. It makes it as effortless as ever to be heard by thousands, regardless of the listening app they use. Visit Spreaker.com forward slash AdHub. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com forward slash AdHub and start using your advertising dollars in an impactful way.